Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi, Philippians chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll be reading verses 12 through 18. In the most difficult of times, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, draws his quill across the ancient parchment and gives to the believers in Philippi, and thus to the church for all time, a reason to have lasting joy in the journey and the peace of God ruling in the heart for each new day until Jesus comes again. That is the overall theme of Paul's epistle. Now this morning, we continue to scrutinize the contents of this letter in today's selected text, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, we are going to hear what I am calling some straight talk from the apostle for Christians living in a crooked world. Straight talk for life in a crooked world. Begin at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, just as you have given us the Apostles' letter by your Holy Spirit, we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would bring the truth of it to bear upon the understanding of our minds and plant it like seed into the soil of our hearts. As your word bears fruit in our lives, we will be enabled the more to live for your glory. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you are aware that many of the old nursery rhymes we have stuck somehow in our memories actually grew out of more serious times in the history of civilization. I want to give you an example of that. English history under King Charles I At that time, there existed considerable animosity 
between the English and the Scots. And along comes the Scottish general, Sir Alexander Leslie. He was considered a hero for that nation when he succeeded in signing a covenant with the King of England, securing religious and political freedom for Scotland. Now that particular milestone in history was to be memorialized in one of the British or English nursery rhymes. You're going to recognize it. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat which caught a crooked mouse. I wonder how many of you can finish this. And they all lived together in a crooked little house. The interpretation has it that the Scotsman, General Leslie, is the crooked man, having walked the crooked style, which is an indication of a border, in this case the border between Scotland and England, and at long last secured an agreement to, in some sense, live at peace together, though the people of that day on both sides certainly considered it to be a crooked house in which they would have to learn to live together. Now, I have to tell you that before my research this week, I didn't know about that connection to history, but when I did read verse 15 of this chapter 2 here in Philippians, it was that nursery rhyme that somehow flooded into my memory. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile, because Paul, as you've seen in our reading, refers to the vast unbelieving world as a crooked and perverse generation or nation, I think it says in the King James. This is a term in the original language that most likely refers to the whole of the fallen human race of Adam since the beginning of time. The one, one human generation. There's only, after all, one nation of men and women, boys and girls, all of them crooked and perverse as a result of Adam's rebellion and our own. That is to say that life lived in a world under the deceptions of sin and Satan is a world where things are not what they were meant to be. Everything good is tainted by corruption. Everything as we believers look around us through the lens of Scripture find that everything is bent. It is distorted. It is full of lies. It is perverted. On every hand there are crooked men, women, boys and girls living in crooked houses. Now I note that the old nursery rhyme did not end with the words... They lived happily ever after. They just lived together in a crooked little house. This word crooked here in the Greek is the term scolios. Some of you have heard it used in the medical realm. A scoliosis of the spine simply means a crookedness of the back. 
So biblically, we are being told that sin has us all bent out of shape. Everything distorted. And to understand as well that the great physician alone is the one who has the cure, who can straighten us out. Remember John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament type of prophets announcing the coming of Christ? He chose as his text on that day he baptized Jesus when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He borrowed from the book of Isaiah. These were the words that he shouted in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So Paul writes to these relatively new Christians. He has some straight talk in a crooked world. He's providing a cure for spiritual scoliosis. His prescription begins in verse 12. Uh, Look at the verse with me as we move through this study. Verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always, underscore the word, obeyed. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says that believers living in a crooked world must commit themselves to a life of obedience. God's means for straightening us crooked people out is to get us command oriented in life. Now someone told me a while back how they absolutely dreaded going to a rehabilitation therapist saying uh, oh they make me do such painful things telling me to bend this way until I think I'm going to break in two and I said to this person on that occasion well are you making any progress with your condition the answer came back something like this oh yes I'm so much better and so much more free to do the things I want and need to do. Well, beloved, obedience to the revealed will of God and his word is a little like that. God is desiring to straighten out what sin has bent in us. Paul says, you have obeyed. And he's saying, I saw it because I was with you. And he says, keep on obeying now that I'm not with you. Remember, he's writing this from a prison in Rome. Sort of like the physical therapist showing a patient what to do and then telling them between appointments at home to do the same thing ten times a day, even if it hurts. How much more, he says, in my absence, should you keep on obeying the will of God? of God. I like one person's description of the Christian life when they said that fundamentally it's a long 
obedience in the same direction. This is God's rehabilitation of us sinners, that we would become command-centered, quick to obey, even when it hurts. How much more, he says, in my absence should you keep on obeying the will of God? It was under the ministry of Paul that they received, you remember, the salvation of their souls. He founded the church there in Philippi. And when he was physically with them, obviously he could encourage them daily in their Christian life, all day long. They could come to him with their problems. They could lean on him for their encouragement. But now Paul is far off in a Roman prison. He wants them to keep on keeping on. Notice the rest of that verse says, work out your salvation. And by the way, implied in the original text, he's really saying this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As if to say that every believer must learn to apply every means of grace God gives and to apply it on their own. Work out your own salvation. Take some individual responsibility for the changes in your life that salvation is meant to bring. Paul is really saying, don't be leaning on me. Earlier, back in chapter 1, And verse 27, he repeats the theme. Listen, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And be very careful to understand, too, he's not telling them to work for their salvation. He's addressing them as those redeemed already. He's saying, I want you to be working out what God has already accomplished within. But you need to take very personal and individual responsibility for a steadfast growth in grace, a long obedience in the same direction. I might personally illustrate this dynamic. You know, when I left a beloved flock of God's people in New Jersey seven years ago to become your pastor, I can tell you that there was a very real, palpable tearing at the heart for the congregation as well as for myself and for my family. I had been their under-shepherd for more than two decades of time. Some, many, had come to Christ under my ministry and were babes in Christ. Some were literal babes that I dedicated to the Lord in their parents' arms and later met them at the altar as they took up marriage and then dedicated their children. These are the blessings of a long-term ministry. But I have to say, looking back on this, that I had been there under shepherd for so long that that congregation had come to depend a great deal on their pastor for every kind of life circumstance. 
The phone in the parsonage was ever ringing all hours of the day and night. And so as I was to leave them, there were any number of fears expressed. Maybe even a little bit of anger came my way. To think that I would depart from them. How would they manage? Who would they turn to, etc.? Now, I want you to know it all turns out that the best thing I did for that church and for that congregation was to leave. I trust no one here this morning feels the same way at Good Shepherd Church, but it was the best thing I ever did after many years of ministry there was to leave for the sake of that flock. Why, you ask? Because most of the core group of discipled believers there learned for the first time since their conversion, some of them, that they could depend on the Lord all by themselves. That congregation came together. That congregation remained steadfast for a solid year without a pastor. They learned to work out their own salvation, and God was faithful. You might imagine, by the way, the joy uh, that is mine now. I recently have been contacted by them and asked to come back for a visit. And uh, in fact, I've been given the privilege of being their keynote speaker on a Sunday next month, which will commemorate their church's uh, 60th anniversary. And it'll take place in the 60th year of my life, having spent one-third of those 60 years in that place. That church remains a faithful witness in the community. But individuals there needed to take up the same kind of responsibility that Paul is writing here. He said, if I'm there, I was there and you obeyed. I'm not there now. In my absence, continue the life of obedience. The lesson of verse 12 reminds us again, every individual believer is to be proactive concerning their growth in grace. I trust that those of you attending to this ministry regularly, week in and week out, are not solely dependent upon the preaching and the teaching of the word here, but that every day of the week you are pursuing the means of grace to remain faithful as an obedient servant of Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that while salvation at first is never based upon our own efforts, that the gift of new life, the gift of regeneration, initiates us into a life with obligations. We are bound to obey our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life, a long obedience in the same direction, always toward Christ-likeness of our basic character and the transformation of our temperament. We ask the question, any given day, am I bearing more and more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in my life? I have an individual and personal responsibility to do just that. This working out would not be something we could ever do, by the way, in our own strength. This is not about living the Christian life from the personal uh, resource of individual willpower. 
I'm glad that's the case because I'm just one of those people among the masses of humanity that have always struggled with having much of anything called willpower. It is not merely about greater commitments to greater self-discipline, as admirable as that may be. I really do look up to very disciplined people, but I also know that growth in godliness is not something that we ultimately do for ourselves. And I'm glad for this truth. Most of us would be pretty discouraged if it was all up to us on our own. As much as I'm saying we have an individual responsibility We do not pursue obedience or growth in grace out of our own strength. Hear it again. It's good news indeed when we are struggling toward more obedient living. It's in verse 13. Now look at that verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Boy, this verse is worth a lot of meditation for what it is actually saying. There is such good news here. Clearly, it is God himself, through the inward working of his Holy Spirit, that produces these two essential things. I want you to see it. It says, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Is it my willpower? No, it says it is his power to cause me to will and to ultimately do his good pleasure. How may I live in such a way as to really please the Lord? And here we see that God ensures the very real possibility by giving us both the desire to live righteously and the effective power to do so. Amen? Does this not encourage you to get on with the Christian race? In fact, the Greek word employed here for God's working in us is the Greek term energeo, or energy. Always keeping the truth of verse 12, work out your own salvation, in balance with verse 13, keep it in proper balance. I do my part, and God does his. And without his part, working in me both to will and to do what pleases him, no progress at all would be made. It is the vital key to the how of Christian living. So vital, let me repeat it another way, and then we'll move on. We are not passive in the Christian life. We are to work out. By the way, that's a sweat term. That's like working out physically. Someone was sharing with me today that they kind of got themselves twisted around and their muscles a little sore because they were lifting weights. They They were working out. We're not passive in this. But we are not at the same time left to our own resources. It is God's inner geo, his power at work in us. You know, perhaps a rather homely illustration uh, of this dynamic. These two verses are so key, 12 and 13. Uh, let, me, uh, let me illustrate it, maybe fix it in your mind this way. One morning, a while back, I had some wonderful bread available to me, and I just knew it would be wonderful as toast and jam with a fresh cup of coffee. 
So I brought out the toaster from where we keep it stored. I went to work and sliced the bread, placed two pieces, one in each of their respective slots. I pushed down the control and thought I would utilize the time it would take by pouring the coffee and unfolding my newspaper. And I found myself reading a few of the headlines. And before I knew it, half a cup of my coffee had been consumed. And then suddenly, almost uh, a little annoyed, I thought, what's taking the toast so long? Now, you know the answer, don't you? I forgot to plug it in. Now, I want you to get the parallel here. Nothing wrong with the bread. Nothing wrong with the button that lowered the bread into the toaster. In fact, there was nothing wrong, really, with the toaster that a little electricity wouldn't fix. Now, let's take this just a little further. Bear with me with a little foolishness here. I want to make a further point. Those thin wires inside of a toaster are made of something called nichrome. I bet at least a few of you didn't know that. I know about nichrome. I may not be able to make toast, but I do know a little science. Nichrome is really the brand name for a nickel-chromium resistance wire, a non-magnetic alloy of nickel and chromium. 80% nickel, 20% chromium. Uh, It is silvery gray in color. You can go home and look in your toaster. This will be the case. Uh, It is a metal that is corrosion resistant. It has a high melting point of about 1400 degrees centigrade. Due to its relatively high resistivity and resistance to oxidation at high temperatures, it is widely used in heating elements such as in hair dryers, electric ovens, and toasters. Typically, nichrome is wound in wire coils, so a certain electrical resistance and current pass through to produce heat. (sighs) I, I won't trouble you with the specific information regarding its technical physical properties. I could tell you about its elasticity, its specific gravity and density. I studied this. But just trust me, people, I know something about nichrome. But I couldn't make toast. So what is my point? I can know a whole lot about the Christian life. I can recite hundreds of the scripture commands. I have studied and can delve into the depths of theology to explain in infinite detail the processes of growth and grace and godliness. But if I'm not plugged into the power source, I still can't make toast and I don't live much of a genuine Christian life. Next time I want toast for breakfast, I have to do my part. I have to get out the toaster, slip in the bread, push down on the lever, and having worked all that out, I must depend on Florida power and light. And I can get out my Bible, and I can read it every day, and I can become familiar with all the means of grace that God has given us for growth and godliness. But I need to get plugged into the source.
Abide in me, Jesus says. And just as the vine cannot bear fruit apart from me, without me, ye can do nothing. Make sure, folks, that all your pursuit of the Christian life is coming out of a fellowship and union and communion with the living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on to verse 14. Remember, this is straight talk for us in the context of living in a crooked world. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputings. Boy, I wish I didn't have to deal with this verse. But that would be grumbling, wouldn't it? The fact is, my friends, this behavioral attitude, this bad habit of grumbling about things, things we have to do, is apparently of great concern to God. The King James Version borrows the Old Testament word to murmur. We can't take the time, of course, to review the wilderness wanderings of God's people Israel. Most of you know the stories when he led them out of bondage. But most of you remember that murmuring, complaining, they had developed almost as an art form during that 40-year journey. The people murmured about water. They murmured about food. They murmured about their leadership. And God dealt with it quite severely. They were bitten by serpents. The angel of God destroyed no small number of them. One of my favorite stories, old Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who didn't like their pastor, were swallowed up by the ground and never seen again. God hates grumbling, whining, and complaining on the lips of his people always has and still does. Murmur not. Why is that? You see, when we begin to murmur and complain, to even argue about our lot in life, what we really are doing is failing to recognize that it is a sovereign God who is setting our table, if you will. He's the one who is filling your plate. It may not be what you want, but in the greater wisdom of his love, he is serving up in your life a set of circumstances which he knows will bring to pass his best purposes in your life. The Israelites were sick and tired of manna every day. They could remember the smell of that leek and potato soup that they had enjoyed back in Egypt. Somehow, they had forgotten what it was like, I guess, to make bricks without straw. And so they got mad at their circumstances and began to murmur. Somehow they forgot that manna was food from heaven. And it was just God's camp food to sustain their walk to a land that would ultimately be flowing with milk and honey. When they murmured and complained, they were saying, we do not believe the promise of God. 
Let the unbelieving world, my friends, do all the grumbling, murmuring, and complaining. They do a lot. But do so do too many Christians. If only they knew the unbelieving world. It was leading to some real weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. But dear child of God, you are on your journey home. You can certainly put up with whatever God in his wisdom puts on your plate. And he's using all that is unpleasant anyway in your life just to get you a little more homesick for a place you've never been. But you are most surely going. Now, in the remainder of our passage today, verses 15 through 18, we hear the encouragement of the apostle telling the Philippians and reminding us that there are both immediate and long-range benefits to working out our salvation, living up to our obligations as redeemed people by the power, uh, his power and presence in our lives. The immediate benefit, he says, is that we will, in this crooked world, which is also a very dark world, Shine like stars in the dark night. Verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now look at this. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. The Greek for the word lights here is luminary. You know you're to be a luminary. Shining stars in the darkness. Many of us learned that truth as children. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Paul says that's God's will. In any group of people, there ought to be that something different about you. There will be, as you hold fast, as he says here, or hold forth the word of life, which is Christ himself. Your very behavior pointing others to Christ. Don't hide that light under a bushel. No, let it shine. Let it shine. The exposed heart of the apostles shines as an example to them in first century Philippi, and it is a pattern for us as well. Paul refers... Did you see it there? To the joy of being a drink offering to God poured out. Interesting language. Should you search the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll discover that after the animal sacrifices of blood, which were made for the purpose of atoning for sin, the priest in every case would then come and pour out the wine of joy around the smoldering heap. We are told that all of it was found pleasing to the Lord. Now there is, of course, only one sacrifice for sin. That's the blood sacrifice. That's the perfect Lamb of God. But it remains, apparently, that each of us would add the drink offering, as Paul did, complementing the work of Christ by promoting spiritual growth and joy in the lives of other believers. He said, if I'm being poured out upon the work that Christ has done in saving you, I'm like that drink offering of old. What a beautiful picture. Well, we've got to stop. But We've had some pretty straight talk in this crooked and perverse world in which we live. Perhaps a new rhyme would be fitting. 
In a crooked world, there was a Christian man who walked the Christian way. He found the Christian book and daily took a look. He grew a Christian life, which made him very nice. And so he shone like a star from a heaven not so far. Let's get on with the journey. There's a lot of crookedness out there. Let's allow God to straighten us out. And there's a lot of growing darkness in the world. Let us shine as his luminaries. We're going to discover if we do. The longer we serve him, the sweeter he grows.